and you can have a seat. Last week we opened our Christmas series that I'm calling Hopes and Fears and, and talked about the fact that so often in the big moments of life, our hopes and fears are bound up together with those moments, whether it's at, at a wedding or whether it's the birth of a child, a graduation, beginning a new job, a retirement, all those things involve both hopes and fears, hopes of what is to come and the excitement of something new and what might happen and our fear that maybe things will not work out very well. And that happens with the holidays. We know that it did in the very first Christmas because people were hoping for what God had promised, hoping that great things were about to happen, that God was on the move, but also fear that maybe this child would not turn out to be what everyone hoped that he would be. And people were hearing messages from angels and responding in song. And we're thinking about some of those stories as we prepare for this holiday season in which we probably bring some hopes and fears ourselves to the story. Hopes that God is at work in our life and fear that maybe things are not the way that they should be. And hopes and fears come with virtually every holiday season. Maybe you can think back to a time even involving some gifts, right? That maybe you bought a ring for someone and you gave it to them for Christmas hoping that they were going to say yes and you would begin a new life together. Or maybe there was a time when you sort of did something really extravagant for your spouse or kids or parents or a friend and there was hope bound up in that, that they would just love it and fear that maybe they would think it was just a little too much. Hopes and fears go along with virtually every important part of our lives. Now, as we think back to that first Christmas and the hopes and fears that were present in those stories, we know that those stories were bound up with the thinking about salvation. Because the people of Israel were a people who needed to be saved. And they knew it. They knew it because they could look back in their history and see that there had not been a king on the throne in Jerusalem, their capital city, for hundreds of years. It had been 400 years since they'd even heard from one of God's prophets. And they knew that part of all of that was their own fault. That they had refused to follow God. They had chosen to worship idols. They had sinned against God. And part of this was punishment for all of that. And so they were hoping and, and listening to God's prophets and hoping that God was going to bring them salvation. Now, the thought of how that was going to work came in a lot of different forms. They were hoping for a person called the Messiah. The anointed one is literally what that means. In other words, the king. They were hoping for a new king. And they had some hopes and fears attached to that. They were hoping that he would save them from Roman oppression. That he would throw off all of that and they could be free once more. That he would be their military and political leader. And it would be a whole new day for them as the people of God. All that together. And then these people in Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2 begin to hear the word of God through the voice of angels. And we're, we're listening to those stories and thinking about how they responded, some of them in song, some of them in obedience, and what that made them feel and how that translates over into our own hopes and fears. So last week we talked about the story of Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, who gets this message from God while in the temple, an angel speaks to him and tells him that he's going to have a son named John and he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. That's all in Luke. We turn back to Matthew today and what we find is another angel, but this angel is speaking to Joseph. Now, 
The, the story of Jesus' birth in Matthew is Matthew 1 and 2, but what we find is at the beginning of the Gospel, the very first verses of the Gospel are a genealogy. And if you've ever read through one of these biblical genealogies, you know that it's pretty easy to get lost in some of that. It's pretty easy for it to lose your attention because we don't know most of these names. We've never heard them. We don't know who the people are. And we're sort of wondering, why does this matter? Why do I even need to know this, right? It's just confusing and not very interesting. But, but what Matthew is doing in that genealogy is connecting Jesus with the story of salvation, with God's salvation history, tying Jesus back through the great kings of Israel all the way back to Abraham himself, the great example of what faith looked like for the people of Israel. And Jesus becomes part of that in Matthew's genealogy. But then Matthew jumps into the narrative, the story of Jesus' life. And it's almost as if Matthew just sort of starts the story expecting who, that we'll know who all the main characters are. He doesn't really in, introduce them in any significant way. He just starts telling the story. And my guess is that Matthew expected his original readers to know who these people were. I mean, the stories began to circulate in the early church, and, and there were probably early Christians who even met Mary, knew who she was because they had seen her, but they certainly knew the names Mary and Joseph as Jesus' parents. And it's almost as if they know the story of the virgin birth as well that's told here in Matthew and in Luke. And so Matthew just starts telling the story, and it looks like this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, Matthew just sort of tells that matter of fact. Here it is. She's pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And maybe if this was the first time you've ever heard this story, you'd be like, what is going on here? I don't even know what that means. And Matthew doesn't really launch into what it means. He just tells it as though it is expected and that it's just part of what we know to be the story. And we do. But and it's a powerful truth. And it created some tension for this couple. Now, I've talked about before, and you've probably heard, that engagement in the first century was a little different than it is now. It was actually a binding contract. So you were not married, but everything but. You didn't live together, no sexual relationship, but you were bound together. You were pledged to one another. And so for a year, you lived in that engagement sort of in-between place, and that marriage was, it was binding. It couldn't be dissolved except according to a divorce. But here we are. Mary is pregnant. Joseph has not been with her. They don't live together. He knows the baby that she's carrying is not his child. And so, what does he do? I mean, they're engaged. What's going to happen next? Verse 19 begins to tell that part of the story. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now it says Joseph uh, followed the law, obeyed the law. What that really says literally is Joseph was just. That's the word that's used there. Or righteous. And in the first century that meant if you were a just Jewish man, 
that you did follow the law, but it says something about his character too. It says who he was. This is a man who sought to be the kind of person that God wanted him to be. So here he is in the situation, believing that his fiance had cheated on the relationship. What does he do next? Well, what does the law say? Well, the law says that a woman caught in adultery should be stoned. Well, you say she's not married. Well, according to Jewish law, she was bound to him. They were married in that way, and so she would receive that penalty. Now, by the first century, most people did not do that. It didn't happen very often. And in fact, most men would just divorce a woman in that situation. And there were a couple options there. You could drag her into court, make all kinds of accusations against her, make sure she was publicly humiliated. Joseph, the just, the man who doesn't want to be that kind of guy, says, no, we're not doing that. This is going to ruin her life anyway. We're not going to make her publicly embarrassed. So he says, we're going to do it quietly. Now, that could be done really quietly. Because in the first century among Jews, a divorce only required a written statement signed by the husband and two witnesses, and the marriage was dissolved. That was it. So he could do it very quietly, and it seems that he's decided that's what's going to happen. But then verse 20 changes everything. But after he had considered this, this form of divorce, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph son of David. And again, Matthew is connecting Joseph back to the kings. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now this confirms everything that we read in Luke 1 and 2, where Mary's told the same thing, right? So Joseph gets this visit from an angel in a dream. It's interesting that none of the other New Testament authors have angels visiting in dreams. Matthew does. you got angels coming and speaking, but not in a dream. Matthew does, and when that happens, it means God's talking to you, okay? And so Joseph knows this is a message to be heeded. And this is the message. What is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. That's the key phrase. This is a miracle. It's as if the angel is saying, Joseph, listen, I know what you're thinking, and it's not true. This is not a result of, of sin. This is not that Mary has done something against you or against God. This is a miracle. This is God on the move. This is God breaking into humanity in a brand new way. This is something unexpected. And so take her home as your wife. Begin the marriage now. And he says this in verse 21. This is Joseph's instruction. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And in that verse, the angel begins to introduce a whole new way of thinking about what God was planning to do, a whole new way of understanding all that the prophets had said beforehand. Because what everybody expected was a military leader. What everyone expected was someone who would be political, create an uprising, throw off Roman oppression, rule in Jerusalem. That was the common thinking. And, and the angel is saying to Joseph here, the beginnings of God is doing something different. God is doing something unexpected. God is doing something more than what everyone thinks God will do. Because this will be world-changing. Now, 
The message there is, name him Jesus. Now, we know names were important in the first century, really important in the story we talked about last week, really important in this story. You're to name him Jesus. It's the same name that we read in the Old Testament as Joshua. Joshua, the one who led the people of Israel into the promised land to take that land as their own. Jesus will get the same name, and it simply means Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh saves. And so that's why the angel would say, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, what does that mean? He will save his people from their sins. What is the angel saying about Jesus? Now, if you're an Israelite, a Jew in the first century, part of what you hear there is, our suffering, our current position, what's going on, is our fault. It's the result of our sin. And so if, if this Jesus is going to save us from our sins, what's going to happen next? And what the angel is saying is that God is doing something bigger than you might think. He's not just saving you from the consequences of your sin that are going on right now. He's saving you from sin in general. Something much larger than just this political issue they had going on, but saving them as human beings. God was inviting them into a new relationship. They knew that they were facing punishment and separation from God, but now God is calling them back to be His people. And the thing is, it's not just them. God is going to be calling all of humanity back to him. And that's what the rest of the gospel is about. The rest of the gospel sort of fulfills everything that's being told to Joseph right here. And Jesus' ministry, his teaching, his miracles will confirm all that. And his death, burial, and resurrection will fulfill it. That Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. That's the job of the Messiah. So it's not just to change politics, it's to change people. And that's what we see in Jesus' day, and that's what we see in our day as well. That God helps us deal with our sin problem, because that's really what they had, was a sin problem. They were all sinners, just like we are. And Jesus came to deal with the sin problem, to save them and us from sin. And that means to deal with the eternal consequences of that sin. To deal with the consequences now that separate us from God. So God is inviting us into a relationship now and for eternity. And the only way that happens is if Jesus takes the sin from us. And again, that's what the rest of the story is about. Now, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophets. Now, over and over, Matthew's going to connect Jesus to the prophets and say Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophets. This is one way, verse 23. The prophet said, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. This is fulfilled in Mary as a virgin, and they will give him the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if you know the story of Jesus, if you've read the Gospels, maybe you have, you might say, I don't remember a single time when anybody called Jesus Emmanuel. His name's always Jesus. So what is this about? Well, it's not so much that this is a name that Jesus receives as much as it is that it's a title, a function of who he is. He is God 
with us. And because He is God in human flesh, His death on the cross does change things. His resurrection does change things. Because of who He is, He could save His people and us from their sin. God with us. And it fulfills what God had been planning for centuries. And then we finish the story beginning in verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home to be his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, I sense no hesitation in this story. I mean, the angel says, Joseph, go take Mary home as your wife. And the rest of the story says he did just that. It's like he went out and did it that day. I don't know how far along they were in that engagement that should last a year, but it seems that this was the day they became husband and wife and moved in together. And now we have to remember, this wouldn't have been easy for Joseph because Mary's heard this message from an angel. Joseph's heard this message from an angel, but no one else has. And so when he says, this is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit, this pregnancy is God at work, everyone he knew would have said, yeah, sure thing, right, Joseph. That's not the way it works, okay? But that was the way it worked. And so despite all the rumors that would have been circulating, despite all the stuff that family and friends would have said about both Joseph and Mary, He does exactly what the angel says, and he seems to do it right then. And then when the baby is born, his name is Jesus, Joshua, Yahweh saves. So with all the hopes and fears tied up in this story, fear that Mary had cheated, fear that maybe this wasn't real, but hope that God was on the move, What does it teach us today? Well, I think it's all based in that one phrase that he will save his people from their sins. And it's good news for us that this is the case. It may be hard to believe, but sin can be forgiven. Now, I think that is hard for a lot of people to believe. One of the things that many people have told me over the years when they're either grappling with something that's happened in their life or sort of deciding whether they're going to follow Jesus is, I don't believe God could actually forgive me of my sin. I'm sure he can forgive other people, but you don't know what I've done. You don't understand how badly I've messed up. You don't know how I've I've messed up relationships, messed up my life, and it's not just been once, it's been over and over. I've fought this battle and I keep losing. How could God continue to forgive me? It may be hard to believe, but sin can be forgiven. My guess is after 400 years of waiting for God to do something, the people of Israel were thinking, I'm not sure our sin can be forgiven. I'm not sure this can be dealt with. The message of Jesus was, yes, it can. It truly can. And so as we look in our own lives, one of the things that we grapple with is, can I be forgiven? Can the power of sin be overcome in my life so that God can be at work in me, not only in this life, but for eternity? And the answer is yes, absolutely yes. That is the case. That's God's promise. 
And I think as we try to work that out in our lives, there's some things that we can do in a practical level that can help us make this happen. First of all, accept the gift of forgiveness. Just accept that, you know what, your sin's no worse than anybody else's. It can be forgiven. God has not sort of said, I'll forgive up to this point, or I'll forgive these sins, but not these. Your sin can be forgiven. Accept that gift. And part of what we're saying is the way you accept the gift is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. To repent of your sins, which means to say, you know what, I know I've sinned. I know I'm headed in the wrong direction, and I want to change that. I know I won't be perfect, but I want to change the direction of my life and to be baptized into him. And it may be you've been thinking about that and contemplating, is this what I need to do? And I would love to talk with you about that. We'll have time after the service if you want to speak to me or call me during the week, email me. I'd love to talk with you about these steps. But we would love to see you go through that. But you truly can be forgiven. Accept that gift. And then second, allow Jesus to change you through forgiveness. It really can change how you see yourself, how you see God, and how you see your relationship with God. You see, God loves you. And regardless of what you've done, He is calling you into a relationship with Him today. He wants you to know Him. Listen, He already knows you, right? He knows everything about you. He knows all you've done. He's still willing to forgive it. He knows everything that you are because He created you. That's all there. What He wants is for you to know Him. And He invites every single one of us into a relationship with Him through Jesus. This is all about Jesus saving us from our sins. He's invited you into that today and into a relationship that will last through eternity. Allow that to change how you understand yourself. You were that important and you really can be different. And God can walk with you all along the way. So let that change how you understand yourself and God and the relationship you have with God. And then finally, share the gift of forgiveness. My guess is there are people in your life, whether it's family or friends, who really need to know this, who may be struggling with how they've messed their lives up. And the question is, who's going to talk to them? And maybe you feel like, well, I don't really know how to say all that. I'm not sure I'm capable. Hey, one of the easiest things to do is just invite people to come to worship with you because this is the stuff we talk about. And this is the perfect season to do that because people are more open to an invitation to church during this time of the year than at any other time, except maybe Easter, but Christmas really is the best. And so two weeks from now, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, maybe you've got family that's going to be in town or you're going to be with them. Perfect opportunity to say, hey, we're going to go and worship on Christmas Eve. It's going to be a time for us to share with our church, and we would love for you to be there. I invite you to do that. There are people in your life that need to know that Jesus forgives just as powerfully as he did in this day, he does today. So issue that invitation. Share the gift that really is forgiveness. Now, I mentioned this, and I just want to make it clear. Maybe you've received this gift, and you've messed up. God still offers forgiveness. It's not just a once and done thing. He offers forgiveness to each one of us. We've studied 1 John. 1 John 1, 9 says he is faithful and just to forgive us if we confess our sins. 
But if you're still contemplating this, don't put it off. Go ahead and ask. I would like to answer your questions. Any one of our elders would be glad to answer your questions. Be glad to talk you through what it means to be a follower of Jesus and know what forgiveness really is. So reach out to one of us and let us talk you through that. Let's pray together. God, we know we're sinners. And we know that there are consequences to our sin and not all those consequences are wiped away in this life, but you help us walk through them. But the eternal consequences of sin really can be taken away. And so God, we pray that you will give us the strength to ask for forgiveness one more time, the strength to make a commitment to Jesus. And God, we pray that through all of that, your spirit would be at work in us, the church. In Jesus' name, amen.